You're listening to 99.1 FM, Portland Radio Project. Hello and welcome to Greater Greater Portland, a show not just about Portland, but like like the whole thing, like Greater Portland, and how to improve it somewhat. Some might even say, make it greater. Yes. (laughs) Um, I'm your host, Xavier D. Stickler. And I'm Bradley Bondi. And I'm Jenna Demmel. Uh, we're back after a brief pause because someone won't stop licking door handles, Jenna. Sorry. I think I texted our in our group chat about this where I was like, someday it'll taste like chocolate. <laughs> but no. Yeah. yeah, but no, for real, though, I got COVID again. It's still out there. So just be careful, everybody. The pandemic isn't over as much as some people would like to think. <laughs> We, we are not clear to go back to recreational door handle licking, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> um, well, we're here to do a second episode on our deep dive into homelessness, which I would say everyone agrees is the most pressing problem in Portland. Now, we had actually planned on doing something of like an academic rundown on the history of homelessness in America and really get into why it's become such a crisis in like most American cities. It's not just Portland that's facing it. But this last month, so much has gone on and around the different shifting policies that I felt like we really needed to examine what's being put forth right now. This last week, at time of recording at least, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler passed an ordinance with support of four out of the five members of city council that bans outdoor camping from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Like early indications show that his broad public support, though as we'll get into later in the episode, that's probably more derived from just how frustrated everyone is with the current situation, then I would argue an understanding of what the ordinance actually does and the technical challenges posed to the city in its implementation. Yeah, no, I personally do not think this bodes well. When I saw, I get push notifications from various news organizations or Twitter or something like that, where it says, I think Willamette Week or the Oregonian first broke this story when I saw it. And I'm like, oh no, this is another, not only is it a band-aid solution, but it's also something that could disproportionately affect lives even more. And I don't think it's going to go well. Yeah, and before we'd even get into that, it's probably a good idea just to give everyone a quick refresher on what we did in episode one, where we explored the spectrums of different philosophies and framings around homelessness. Right. Uh, What do you guys remember from that? Um, Well, the big one I remember, because it was just so outlandish, was like, people are bussing their homeless here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It kind of like falls into what the second camp, if you will, if I can like press that is uh, the idea that, like, people are flocking here because of, like, weak-willed liberal leadership. And the underlying philosophy is that if we just took a harder position, uh, people in the city, like, homeless people in the city would just despawn. Yeah, after all, if uh, if you make someone's life very miserable, they just cease existing, right? Yeah, no, the NPCs just go away. And so the other one was, like, the homelessness crisis is a moral failing of every individual homeless person. These are going to be the type of people and homeowners generally who aren't particularly supportive of any more services being offered. They tend to frame it not as, like, a housing issue, but a drug abuse or mental health crisis, which it is that too, but to try and like removing the lack of affordability of housing from the equation is completely unreasonable in my opinion. On the other side of that, you do have the kind of yimbies in the city who are like dead set on only focusing on increasing housing supply. For those unfamiliar, Um, yimby is yes in my backyard as opposed to nimbies, which are not in my backyard. Yeah, exactly. The tagline is if we just had enough homes, people, even addicts, would live in them. There is some truth to that. But as we're going to get into later, there's like a lot of issues around this policy of just focusing on housing and housing first. And then finally, there's kind of what I consider to be the best framing of the homelessness crisis, which is that this is an issue of like a failure and elimination of social safety nets and like an economic system that mandates survival upon like very strict integration into a fairly exploitive workforce. Actually, can you unpack what that means specifically, integration into exploitative workforce? Yeah, it's basically that in order to survive, you have to go to work. 
And I think a lot of listeners will probably go like, yeah, of course, if you expect to be part of society, you have to contribute to society, which is a framework that I don't think like any of us are disagreeing with. Right. But it's a fairly narrow definition. It's a narrow requirement in a country that basically doesn't have nearly the social services that we should, particularly for people with mental illness and people with disabilities, any type of like neurodivergence, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, unless you can be obedient little worker and do school like everyone else and do, you know, quote unquote, minimal minimal wage and minimal skill labor like everyone else, there's just not a place for you here particularly. And I think kind of approaching it on reforming that underlying ideology is going to be necessary towards, you know, getting the health care we deserve and moving society forward at all. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit because it would not be a Greater Greater Portland episode if we didn't have a little bit of a history lesson. Dun, 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 dun. Bradley's in my favorite. Yeah, uh, don't worry. This one's going to be brief because we want to get into like the actual core of what's being proposed here. At the start of the pandemic, the CDC came out with some guidance and basically said, do not sweep people, right? You're sweeping people who are outdoors, who don't have any possessions, who don't have access, you know, very well-rounded access to healthcare, who are extremely mobile, who are disproportionately likely to be transit users. The idea of like keeping them on the move and possibly infecting more people, especially in a time before, you know, vaccines, uh, not a good idea. So the city kind of had to follow that. The other thing that is at least setting the political foundation for everything we're seeing now with this ordinance is a court case called Martin v. Boise. This is a Ninth Circuit decision that basically says municipalities cannot sweep or arrest homeless people unless adequate shelter space is available, Uh, which really makes sense, right? Like we cannot make you go away unless we have a place to put you. That was supposed to be the underlying foundation of all of this and eventually became codified in Oregon House Bill 3115. And this is going to be, I'm not going to make you read the full text, but we're just going to listen and and hear what it has to say because it's going to be, it's going to come up again later. Mm-hmm. Basically, it just says, quote, um, provides that local law regulating sitting, lying, sleeping, or keeping warm and dry outdoors on public property that is open to the public must be objectively reasonable as to time, place, and manner with regards to persons experiencing homelessness. Basically, just says you can't make laws that are un- unreasonable to time, place, and manner uh, with, like, how homeless people move around. There's room for discretion in there. There definitely is, and I think that's like a fundamental tension of what we're experiencing in the city right now. So after HB 3115 passes, you have a bunch of different advisors within the city of Portland trying to figure out, okay, how do we comply with this while also working towards an agenda where we have less visible homelessness? And that leads us to the Sam Adams memo letter. So in 2022, former mayor Sam Adams, who was in office like early Obama administration, he ran for city council a couple years ago, didn't win. Ted Wheeler brings him on as a homelessness advisor. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, I I need a minute with that one. Anyway. Yeah, no, so Sam Adams, former mayor, resigned after something of a sex scandal, I guess you could say. Bounces around a couple of years as a lobbyist, comes back to Portland, begins working as a mayoral aide. Certified dude detected here, right? He's just a guy. He knows a lot about city government. We, we kind of got one of those technocrats in the mix. And I think that's important context for what this memo says. So in February 2022... A memo leaks, and it's to the city council and a couple heads of other offices dealing with homelessness. And it basically calls for three 1,000-person shelters, staffed by the National Guard. Um. Okay. And social work students in college. Oh, my goodness. Just for college credit, if that 
and it would basically allow the phase-in of outlying outdoor camping. So there's obviously a couple issues with this. I think if this were proposed today, it would probably even be able to get like a majority of citizens supporting it. But Jenna, Bradley, what would you like foresee as maybe some like obvious ways in which this is a bad idea? Um, well, 1,000 people, or it was 1,000 in each of these, yes? Yes. That's a lot of people in one location. And that's a lot mm-hmm. of people who maybe aren't in the best health situation. Yeah, jumping off that, one, like putting all these people together, two, figuring out the size of the place. Like, I just pictured the convention center or something like that. Or, like, Lloyd Center being the only place that could house a thousand people or more. And then also, I'm thinking about these poor social work students. They're not listing their supervisors or anything like that. Would their supervisors be the National Guard? And also, the National Guard being here, would that make it, would that make it constitute like a FEMA disaster or? Well, that was basically what the letter was calling for, is like to make it a FEMA disaster, make President Biden declare like a state of emergency, be able to mobilize the military. Uh, the issue is like, you're dispatching the military yeah. on civilians. The other thing is like, there are only a few, like a thousand people is, you know, like kind of hard to imagine. A lot of theaters seat that. But the issue is like, we're talking about enough room to be able to have like mass kitchens and sleeping areas and sitting areas. Toilets. (laughs) Exactly. So what you kind of come down to is you're looking at like a very, very large warehouse. And there are only a couple like municipally owned properties that aren't being used that could utilize that one of them being a port building the other one being the expo center oh i know where you're going with this because i know history (laughs) and like i i don't want to be alarmist right i don't want to be the person on twitter who screams fascism but like where using the military to warehouse homeless people in the expo center is I think a little bit on the nose even for the Wheeler administration because the last time anything was done like that at the Expo Center, it was an internment camp for the Japanese in World War II. Like, this is this is the level of idea-making that we are dealing with. Yeah, you can't, you can't see me right now, listeners, but I'm legit kind of smiling and shaking my head in disbelief that it's like I don't know if they're not seeing the parallels or the administration's just like, we're desperate, we might as well forgo image politics or whatever and the fundamental methodology and underpinning of this approach right of like we're going to sweep people into shelter so we can outlaw outdoor camping has always been the goal and the plan that we've carried over even if this like super draconian sam adams memo never went anywhere And so I feel like you can, like, this is directly reflected in the specifics of this ordinance. So are you guys ready to hear what this ordinance entails? All right. Let's hear it. Yeah. So this measure largely responds to a lawsuit filed against the city by people with disabilities who can't navigate the sidewalks due to tents. Okay. So the city has chosen to settle that lawsuit. I agree that the city was guilty in this case. They did the right thing by settling. Uh, But the specific plan calls for the ban of camping between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. on city docks, pedestrian plazas, every sidewalk in the city, in parks, along high crash corridors, and within 200 feet of any school that is in a high school or university, so like elementary, pre-k, middle school, any construction site or site with a permit, which I can see some room for permits to then be abused there, or a natural overlay zone. It bans permanent fixtures, so like any kind of little structure that's been erected is going to go. It bans heaters, any kind of fires or cooking instruments. Bans campsites that are selling car parts or bikes, which I think is exceedingly reasonable. And as you can kind of tell, it's like very broad ranging. Mm -hmm. Like basically any part of the city that is a public right of way, no camping at all, and you can't camp anywhere between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. on sidewalks. So it completely, in addition to, okay, like, say um, at, like, between 9 p.m. and 7 a.m., they still can't use heaters or fires? So my my understanding of the ordinance is that, like, no heaters or fires whatsoever. 
Oh, jeez. And then no erection of, like, any sort of tents or, or like, sleeping bags at all uh, between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Yeah, so far the only thing I'm okay with, just because I know friends of mine have been victims of this, is the campsite mechanical sellers, because I know friends who have had their bikes stolen and then probably stripped for parts. But other than that, a lot of this is obviously rubbing me the wrong way. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like geographically, basically all publicly owned land in the city? Yeah, so if you break it down, like, you can never camp within 250 feet of a pre-K, middle school, or elementary school, a construction site, or a site with a permit, a natural overlay zone, or high crash corridors. So that's basically all the areas in which you currently see camps, right? So it's it's pretty wide-ranging. It is, like, most of the city. I struggle to think of anywhere in the city that is not one of those things. Yeah, exactly. And Xavier, like you said, somebody could, like, arbitrarily put a permit somewhere. And then, even then, that cancels out the camping place entirely. Yeah, no, I can definitely see no way in which our city's beleaguered permit process could be, like, negatively affected by this. I'm sure this will go great. So, yeah, like, it, it bans a lot of the, like, camping at all in a lot of the city, which, okay, I, I think that's fine. Like, let, let's get into the part of this that, like, we can agree with. Camping along high crash corridors, ban. Okay, good. Uh, within 250 feet of schools, probably fine. But it's just the 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. on all sidewalks in the city. So if you're a person who maybe works night shift, like you're resorting to private property. And I think that's one of the things that we have to look for is with this increased policing of people on public rights of way, I think they're going to be a lot more like trespassing. And also, I think it's worth mentioning that like we do not have the shelter space to accommodate the 6,000 some odd people who are homeless in Portland. Yeah. And I think our city council knows that too. Our government knows that. And that's why they're like, okay, with this ordinance, it's like a last ditch effort to, again, like preserve image under, under a certain guise of safety. Yeah. And so Commissioner Rubio in the meeting did put forth an amendment to hold off implementation until at least two of the sanctioned camps, right? That's going to be the sanctioned 140-ish person villages of, of tents, m maybe, are going to be built. First one's going to open in July by the Clinton Street Max station. Second one is going to open somewhere in the fall. The mayor's response was basically that we already have 2,500 shelter beds available and adding like 300 more isn't going to make that much of a difference. That's kind of a separate issue and the ban should go into effect now. So it didn't get a second, just kind oh. of died. Oh dear. I will say like, we can't wait years for housing. Like that is a fundamental issue with housing first, which is the, you know, what, what advocates have long been, you know, asking for. So we have 2,500 shelter beds, you said? Mm-hmm. How many homeless folks do we have? Uh, 6,000. Okay. All right. Yeah. You may notice that those are like different numbers. So, <laughs> so what are the paradigms and parts of this that we agree with? Um, I think to start would basically be to say, like, we can't wait years for housing. And that is like a fundamental issue I have with Housing First. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with Housing First, that's basically just to say it's going to be easier to get people clean, get people mental health when they are living in permanent housing. Yeah, and I, and, I, I agree. Yeah, and I think we I think we all agree with that just for the, the security of having four walls and a door for one. And if you don't have a job, finding a space to get a good night's sleep before going to an interview, cleaning yourself up. Because if you're just out on the street and you go and do a job interview unkempt and not having slept very well, then you're not going to get a job and it's just going to be a cyclical perpetuation of what we got going on right now. So at the key root of it is shelter. Yeah, all that being true, it takes a really long time to actually be able to build housing. And it's unbelievably expensive. I think like a very common like left-wing narrative in the city is why would we spend money on shelter when we should be spending all that money on housing 
And it's like, you know, the new Hollywood hub nonprofit housing that's being built at the Hollywood Transit Center, that's being constructed for three quarters of a million dollars per unit. Three quarters of a million. Are these, these are like gold-plated toilets or something? No, like, I don't mean to be a little nimby-ish, but the building is meh. Like, it is not an attractive building. It has, like, little to no amenities. It's just solidly a building. And for what it's doing, it's fine. But for the price we're talking, that's just become, you know, the standard of construction in Portland. It costs <laughs> a lot to build things in America right now. It's made out of the, out of the finest hardwood sourced from the Yukon itself. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, that's, uh, that's disturbing. We're approaching uh, San Francisco levels of construction costs. That's unnerving. Yikes. Yeah. And so the idea that, like, no progress can occur until we, like, focus solely on housing with no intermediate steps, like, I will agree with the centrists in Portland, uh, like, that is a bad take. Okay, so in some housing that's being built right now is it's extremely costly to build it, and some people are like, oh, that's that's not worth it when we have to figure out all of the little problems before tackling a seemingly insurmountable task, which is housing everybody. Yeah, and I will also say, in addition with my agreement with Wheeler on pushing back against the narrative that there can be like no intermediate steps until we get more permanent housing, which is, you know, years away. I will also agree that like something needs to be done to stabilize the externalities of the type of homelessness we're seeing. Like 41% of fires last year were related to homelessness despite, you know, homeless individuals making up like 0.7% of the population. 50% um, of arrests are of unhoused people. I think that there is a case that that is because, you know, like cops love policing homeless people. I also think it's another case to say that like, and like homelessness is already criminalized. I think another part of that is we are seeing like a breakdown in the social contract of acceptable behavior on the streets. And probably, like, my most shilly take today will be uh, we can't chase out the taxpayers. Like, this is hurting downtown businesses. This is hurting community members. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there is, it's not unreasonable to have some limitations on where you can camp. Mm. Yeah, like, the ADA implications of this are, are, like, I support, right? Like, I do support that sidewalks should be navigable. That's fine. But, yeah, it does... This ordinance feels like it's not just putting in some restrictions on where you can camp. It's basically prohibiting it in most of the city. Yeah, if you were to draw like red X's on any of the points that we listed, I think the city would be mostly X's unless you like go and have pontoon camps in the river. Yeah. Yeah. So and I would say like that's where our like sympathies towards the city council end. Because the most pressing question is like, where are people going to go? And that was a question that was asked countless times of the mayor and no substantive answer has really been given. We can agree on the like philosophical underpinnings of like the status quo isn't working. There needs to be intermittent steps before housing. Okay, but let's look at the like technical issues with implementation. 60% um, of homeless people are disabled. So you're asking them to construct and deconstruct their tent twice a day, every day, move it, and then move it where? Where are they going to go? If you can't have your tent, like, I kind of think in the winter when it's cold and it's raining and there's still not enough shelter beds and you're being told you cannot rest inside of a dry tent, where are you going to go? Not to mention the heat waves we've been getting too. Like the the ice and the heat waves, they've been they've been killing loads of people already. So I just I I don't mean to be like fatalistic, but I just I see all kinds of death and destruction from this. And I don't want to mince words, but you know. Let's look at this idea. Statistics show that around twenty percent of the unhoused population has jobs. Disproportionately, those are going to be like night shift jobs. Mm -hmm. That's going to be like janitorial work. So the city has now created 
a situation in which people on night shifts legally have nowhere to go and camp and sleep during the day to make it to their evening work. They also have, like, no place to put their stuff while they are at work unless the work is okay bringing with them their entire possession their entire lives yeah that's honestly the only reprieve i can think of is like i don't know if you're like a night shift convenience store worker and just being like yeah you can put your stuff in the back because i'd imagine they'd probably be the most most receptive and chill about that but yeah no that's mm. but it's not gonna be the majority and if you don't have a job because i don't know you're disabled you're struggling with mental health issues you you can't camp you can't have a tent erected so I feel like the places you're going to go are going to be on to people's private property where you're hopefully not going to be noticed. Or it's going to be like you take your shopping cart on the max and you ride around on the max all day. The other like there's one huge glaring issue with the implementation of this. It's a part I should have mentioned earlier is that after three times of violating this ordinance, you go to prison for 30 days or a $100 fine. The $100 fine is pretty uncredible because if we, as we've seen with the measure 110 fines, that's they're never paid. And with the jail, it's a little concerning. And here's how the violation tracking system is going to be. Hmm. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm listening. Officers' memories. Oh my God. If oh. the officer remembers you by face and thinks it's your third time, Jesus then he arrests Christ. you. And it, there's no tracking system. Like, your name doesn't go in a database being like, oh, this is the second time this person has violated the ordinance. It's literally just going to be, like, off cops' memories. Oh, How many officers do we have? Like, a couple hundred. They're working in different parts of the city. They're going to be on different shifts. There's no good, like... And supposedly there's going to be, like, a, a time limit, right? So it's, like, it's not in the next three years. If you violate this ordinance on your third time, it's supposed to be, like... If you're in the same location and you get cited three times for it. But still the idea of like there's going to be like no database of who's a violator other than just like if a cop remembers you. So that's not great. Oh right? Like gosh. the system we're already off to just like I think it's a little telling of how hastily this was erected. Another thing is like, yes, there are worse drafts in of this, like, uh, basically similar legislation. Like, a lot of the Portland measure is copy and pasted from Beaverton. Hmm. That doesn't make it, l like, legal, though. There's this ongoing legal question. Is, is this a reasonable restriction on time and manner of camping as proposed by HB 3115? And I think that's a question that the city hasn't sufficiently answered. And we're going to play for our listeners a clip from Edward Johnson, the director of litigation at the Oregon Law Center that kind of touches on this actually. And this is from the city council meeting that was done on May 31st. Good afternoon. My name's Ed Johnson. I'm the director of litigation at the Oregon Law Center. I've had the privilege of representing Oregonians who've been forced to live outside for more than 25 years. I'm the lead counsel in the Grants Pass case that's currently pending before the Ninth Circuit. I understand that I'm not going to be able to persuade you to do the right thing here today, but this ordinance is the wrong thing to do. Life is very hard for people who are living outside, and this ordinance is about to make it even harder. This ordinance will not solve the serious problems that this city is facing. It will make those problems worse. We know what works. Supportive housing, rent assistance, tenant protections, and supporting people keeping them stable when they are outside. This law cuts against all of that. It will destabilize and criminalize our neighbors who have been forced outside. And it will waste money that could be spent toward these solutions. On the legal front, there's no doubt that this new law violates ORS 195-530 because it is not reasonable to expect people to pack up and disappear every morning when they have nowhere to go. It is not reasonable to expect people to understand the incomprehensible list of places that they cannot camp when there is no list or map or information about where they can camp. I read ordinances and statutes for a living, and if I had to sleep outside tonight and comply with this law, I would literally have no idea how to do that. 
It is also unreasonable because it is unfair and unreasonable to throw people in jail for 30 days after two warnings for violating an incomprehensible law that they have no choice but to, to uh, violate to begin with. So I understand you're going to pass this law, but you should do it with the understanding that it will not work, it will make this situation worse, and it will face the city with liability for violating state law, the Eighth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Again, that was Edward Johnson, Director of Litigation at the Oregon Law Center. Then Rene Gonzalez, City Councilor, has a little bit of a follow-up that he calls him in for. Go ahead, I, I want to thank you for testifying, first of all. But are, are you familiar with Beaverton's proposed ordinance? To comply Only with what I heard your staffer say earlier today. And are you familiar with Tiger's proposed ordinance to same, comply with state same, law? Same thing. Are you familiar that Lake Oswego is not proposing to amend their existing, existing bans on, on Only what I heard here today. So why do you choose to grace the city of Portland with your presence on these ordinances, but not Beaverton, Tiger, or other jurisdictions that are also doing their best to balancing the very difficult public policy considerations. I'm a Portlander and I've lived here for 27 years and I care about this city. I appreciate your testimony. I'd encourage you to make yourself aware of what other cities are doing to try and comply with state law before stating a very public conclusion about the lack of objectivity in what the city is proposing here. I'd leave it at that. So there there are some legal challenges to this. I, I, I would say that he articulated that this may not be on a solid legal footing fairly well. It's also just that, like, it's unless you're, like, carrying around a, a sheet with you and a map of the city, it's kind of going to be a little bit hard to tell where you can and cannot camp. Yeah, um, Bradley, I'm, I I listened to this already, and Xavier did too, and I'm curious to hear your reactions because you haven't heard this yet. I'm, <laughs> I mean, that was a quite a jarring comment from Renee there. Um, just why? He's how just are you coming here to grace us with he's your presence? Baffled <laughs> why he would dare grace Portland with his presence and not Beaverton? Um, okay. Yeah, because, you know, this is happening right now, and we're the largest city in the metro area that this is readily applicable to. I mean, that just seems so unnecessary. That, like, oh, this measure isn't as, like, draconian as the one in Lake Oswego it is not the persuasive case that I think he thinks it is. <laughs> no, and Lake also, Os like, yeah, if you look at the portion of... Uh, like the ratio, the population ratio, I highly doubt it's the same in Lake Oswego as it is here. I think it's astronomically higher here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, where are most homeless services in the region located? Yeah. Portland. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's all that unreasonable to uh, expect that a majority of the region's homelessness would be in Portland because that's where all the services are. Yeah, and understandably, there's just... Like, I watched a little bit of this, this council hearings proceedings, and oh my god, just the amount of vehement opposition in the room, it's, it's palpable. And what's going to come from this, right? I think one of the interesting things that was said in testimony after this was that homeless people are going to be harder to reach and harder to find. Yeah. Like, this is going to push people from the sides of roads where they're visible, because I think really this ordinance is about making homelessness less visible, mm -hmm. it's going to push people from the edge of roads, you know, like deeper into Forest Park, where, you know, advocates and people provide, trying to provide them services aren't going to be able to find them. Yeah. And then it's just all the more work for those who are actually trying to help. It's, it's flabbergasting. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, like, why is this happening? What is the motivation behind this? And I think that's pretty clear. I have a few city... guesses, if you'll let me have a gander. <laughs> yeah, please. Well, one, money, tourism. Yeah, no, like, the city is reacting to concerns about, like, property values and commerce uh, downtown. There was one guy who testified who's like, we have a Portland IPA isn't selling anywhere outside of Portland. <laughs> Portland India Pale Ale? I guess. <laughs> no, 
<laughs> what does it stand for? Internet something property something? No, literally. It's a beer. There is a oh. Portland branded beer oh, that is not selling up. outside of Portland. And the argument is that it's not selling outside of Portland because our homelessness reputation has gotten too bad. Oh, okay, shut so I've not had I... this beer, but maybe it's not good. I thought you were legitimately talking about property assets or something like that. Which no, no, yeah, I'm talking about is... like this Portland themed beer isn't selling oh in Boise. Oh my god, man! I mean, <laughs> get a better marketing team, then. <laughs> I I understand and I sympathize with the frustration of homelessness on streets, on sidewalks all over the place, right? Personally, like I, the I-205 bike path, I used to use that all the time, right? It is easily the most convenient north-south route for me in my neighborhood. And I haven't used it in months. And I haven't used it at night in years hmm. because it's, I don't feel comfortable using it. I So I get the frustration, but like there's nowhere else to go. Yeah. Where do we expect them to go? If they just did like one of those things, like oh yeah, don't plant, don't camp in front of schools, don't plant, don't camp in front of um, this place. Have it be like maybe one or two things. If they're really desperate to get some kind of ordinance going, like in order for you to vote and support the specific language of the policy, you have to have you have to subscribe to some degree of the underlying ideology that if we are just stricter, if we just make it more inconvenient and more intolerable to live on the street, we will have fewer people living on the street. Yeah. And I think maybe to very some small degree, Portland has made it easier than other cities to be on the street. And that is why we may have a slightly disproportionately higher homeless population. I don't necessarily disagree with that premise. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you're still living with the realities of constantly being in danger. If you're a woman constantly under threat of being raped. Yeah. Being raped. And I think to then take the posture, it's like, we're going to run you out of town by just making it very unpleasant to be homeless here. So we can like get a re like we can get tourism back up and a renewed downtown. Like I love downtown and I absolutely agree that the state of downtown is dangerous and poses an existential crisis for the city. 100% agree with that. But the idea that you're going to sweep everyone into shelter that does not yet exist is a bad idea. And we even had one of the supporters of this, someone who testified in support of this, kind of say, like, hopefully this will incentivize the city to actually expand shelter capacity. Uh, what we kept hearing in opposition to that during the, hill, the hearing was like, this is putting the cart before the horse, which I think is putting it mildly. Mm -hmm. Like you were trying to sweep people into infrastructure that like does not exist is months and maybe years away from from existing i just i just don't think that's a winning strategy and the sentiment behind all this i think brought out i think some transparently reactionary sentiment but no more so obvious than this one particular mom and i'm going to play uh, a portion of that clip of her testifying for you. One second. Hello, I'm here to support the proposal. You'll hear a lot about vulnerable communities today, but no one seems to care the most about the most vulnerable community of all, our children. It's not fair to my kids or yours that 10 feet from his car seat, my toddler can watch someone shooting drugs into their arm at a stoplight. It's not fair to my kids or yours to see a dead body on the side of the road as we try to leave the house for hot cocoa. It's not fair for my kids or yours that on the first nice evening of the summer, our, after enjoying a family barbecue, our 12-year-old has to ask if we should go back inside as the sun sets because he does not feel safe within running distance of our own front door. Some people today will say the proposal is not fair to people experiencing homelessness. You know what is less fair? Dying alone in a tent, covered in filth, with a needle in your arm. On Thanksgiving evening this past year, my family got a phone call from my sister-in-law that her sweet, lively, and adventurous 26-year-old daughter was found dead in a tent under the steel bridge. I will never forget the sound of my sister-in-law's screams or the way my mother-in-law crumpled into me that day. 
What the city has allowed is particularly not fair to the houseless community as an addiction pandemic ravages our city. The loudest opposition here today will be the nonprofit people who need to believe their ideas will work because their jobs depend on it. But when they leave here to go back to one of the still nicer areas of Portland, patting themselves on the back while drinking their $6 oat milk lattes, the disproportionately working class, BIPOC, and immigrant communities of Portland are left trying to survive the next scary thing. Please support this proposal. Okay, there is a lot to unpack in that one. Okay, okay. Um, Think of the children, Bradley. Like, she has her comment about the status quo, not being fair for the homeless and being unsafe for them, right? But how this, this ordinance doesn't do anything to address her concerns there. No, it doesn't it doesn't inherently make people safe. It doesn't like her concern about homeless people uh overdosing. <laughs> I I understand the concern, but this ordinance doesn't do anything to stop that from happening. Yeah, there's no. not enough shelter beds. There's still not addiction treatment. Yeah, exactly. It's uh... Honestly, I I don't know. I I feel sorry for her loss. I feel sympathetic to people wanting to live in in a safe place, but also that that goes both ways. Like people who are unhoused should ideally also feel a modicum of safety and shelter. <laughs> but Bradley, like you said, this ordinance doesn't do that. It's just like out of sight, out of mind. Let's just ban yeah, just just ban camping, make them all go away, you know? with no idea of where they can go. Again, I still have no idea where they would be allowed to spend their days. Yeah, like from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., there's no real clear indication of where you're allowed to go other than, like, not visible. And in fairness, the county's trying to open day shelters. The mayor has promised to support uh, Blanchet House, their daytime operations. As to whether or not, like, the existing infrastructure can support 6,000 people, I think is dubious. I, I feel as though there's like no way to support this measure without subscribing to the idea that this is just gonna make a certain percentage of them, a significant percentage of homeless, Portland's homeless people, like move to Phoenix. And I just don't see that happening. Yeah, can we talk about another little bit that she mentioned, though, where it was like the only people who are opposing this are people who work in the nonprofits who are trying to save their own skin drinking their $6 oat milk lattes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sounds kind of um, conspiratorial. Yeah, I mean, like, don't get me wrong. The, um, the nonprofit complex isn't without its flaws, but it's, it's not necessarily that bad. I mean, I definitely subscribe to the idea that most of what we leave to nonprofits, running shelters, building housing, that should be done directly by government, right? Mm -hmm. uh, government has a competently run government can do it far more efficiently and cheaper than a nonprofit can. But government's not doing those things. And so they're filling in a void that has been left open for decades now by government just being missing in action. Mm -hmm. I don't blame people in Portland for feeling a little burnt out on the homelessness situation. Jenna, you and I spoke to someone from Stop the Sweep Seattle, which I think it was like has a, a reputation for being a, a little bit more of like a radical organization. Mm -hmm. But I'll say this. In our conversation, something truly reframing came up, which is if you conceptualize helping the homeless as charity it's going to become draining if you conceptualize it as what it means to be part of a society that cares for other it becomes rewarding exactly and i you know i i think portland's uh wealth of compassion and charity has run dry because we have not conceptualized this as something more than like a momentary blip and we are now conceptualizing homeless people as like overstaying their welcome. Mm -hmm. And then by making it substantially harder to live on the street, uh, we're just going to drive them away. Like, there, I again, 
I just don't see how anyone can support this without believing that. I'm definitely in favor of a status quo change, but the idea that like more shelter is going to be created as like a mandatory consequence of this is not particularly good governance. I feel like that's the lesson that we learned from Measure 110 actually, is you need to have that infrastructure set up in place before you start try, trying to incentivize the usage of it. Yeah. And talking about the status quo change, I was talking to my partner about this yesterday as we were kind of like I was kind of mulling over my thoughts about this coming episode. And a big thing I thought of is like the view that we are talking about currently, which is like this isn't going to work. This is a Band-Aid, if that, that's just going to extricate people and not really help anything in the long run. I wonder how many of us hold this view if it's just a generation thing. If it's just a somebody who owns property or owns property mentality, is it easier for us to think this way because we do not own property or have stakes in that game? But also we do have stakes in the game because we live here and we've grown up here all our lives. And I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, I mean, the belief that homeless people move to Portland because it's because we treat them well, that's commonly held. And I think that plays a lot into the role of making this a appealing idea. Because even though that's demonstrably untrue, it's still commonly held and it's still commonly parroted, especially among people on the right wing. Mm -hmm. I would say there is a growing reactionary sentiment even among renters. Look who's on city council right now. Um, Rene Gonzalez is, I think, pretty much as far as you can get to the right and still be contemporarily called a Democrat. Mm -hmm. He's very Kurt Schrader-esque in that regard. People in the city are completely fed up with the status quo, which I, again, I think is understandable, but they now seem to be championing people who are proposing non-solutions. As one testifier said, and I think this is like really fantastic, like federal, the federal disinvestment of housing and healthcare that's been going on for the like the last 50 years is not the city's fault. And the city has very little recourse to do anything about that. But the lack of ability to advocate for Portlanders absolutely is Wheeler's fault and Maps's fault and Gonzalez's fault um, and Commissioner Ryan's fault. I don't see them on CNN advocating for, you know, the joint infrastructure package. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to expect too much of them, but mayors in the past have spent every day lobbying in Salem if that's what it takes. And this city council seems to be no more creative than able to say, well, like, what if we just banned homeless people being visible during the day when people want to spend money? Yeah. So, I don't know, given all of this, what what do we all think should come next? Uh, not this. Like, I don't disagree with the idea that sidewalks should be kept clear. I think at some point, like, this idea of sanctioned camping zones, like uh, the mayor is trying to implement, is going to be the way forward to some degree. Mm -hmm. But those have to be established first before we start passing ordinances like this. Yeah, for me, I, I still stipulate that this is... I, I do still stipulate that this is going to kill people, like whether they'll kill each other for spaces or whether people with disabilities who have to trek to and from their new campsites, that toll will probably kill them. If we get another heat wave, that's going to be a disaster. So I, I don't know. I would like to think that we can come up with something better, but it is really hard for me personally to have faith in the city council. The way forward is definitely in the short term, more shelter space. Mm -hmm. But I have no confidence in the current city council's ability to build them. Because out here in Lentz, they've been wanting to build a shelter kind of space using like tough sheds. And it's been years. It has been slowly over the like two years now. And they still haven't broke ground on it. Mm -hmm. Right? The, the city council just doesn't seem to have any interest in, first off, choosing where to put shelters, and two, getting out of their own way and building them quickly. 
they don't seem to take this as like something they have to do urgently. Yeah, it's all about restoring the life back to Portland. And it's it's about tourism and money and property. And what I really detest about this whole thing is the lack of humanity. Like recognizing that these are humans. These are people who are just like us. Like, for example, if I did not have some financial support from my family at this time, I could be out on the street. And yeah, that's just that's just unfathomable for me to think about. So I think the three of us are... We are really lucky to be in a place where we are and also be in a space where we can disseminate this type of information to you listeners. So I encourage you all to to take from this what you will. As we continue this series and as we have other episodes, we really hope you'll continue to join us on this journey. And with that, where can the good people find us? Um, you can find me personally on Instagram. My handle is jkmdem at j-a-y-k-a-y-e-m-d-e-m. Well, you can find me on Twitter uh, with the handle bondi underscore Bradley. And Xavier, where can they find you? Well, they'll never be able to find me. And you'll never take me alive if you do. <laughs> um, but if you want to see some posts of mine, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Xavier D. Stickler. If you'd like to keep up with the show, you can do so on PRP.FM, as well as Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also be able to find full-length videos with graphics and slides alongside our episodes on YouTube at the channel Greater Greater Portland. And for just $2 a month, you can help us in our mission of making Portland a better place to live, as well as get access to exclusive written works. And of course, you can listen to us live and in stereo on 99.1 FM, Portland Radio Project, every second and third Sundays at 4 p.m. Thanks for listening. From the Rose City, this has been Greater Greater Portland. 